Welcome to Series 6 of I Am, I Have, brought to you by Happiful Magazine and Counselling Directory. Now we all have mental health, and some of us will experience or live with mental illness, but that doesn't define who we are. Through I Am, I Have, we'll meet with some wonderful people and find out more about who they are and the passions that shape their lives, as well as their reflections on their own mental health as they discuss their three I Ams and one I Have. On today's episode, I have the huge pleasure of talking to critically acclaimed actor, director, and now author, David Harewood, about his new book, Maybe I Don't Belong Here, a memoir of race, identity, breakdown, and recovery. We discuss the liberation that came with telling his own story, understanding his experience with psychosis, racism, and his passion for performance. Before we start today's episode, I'd love to encourage you to download the free Happful app. Not only can you read Happable magazine in its digital format, but you can find help and support should you need it. Now, back to David. I'm still recording this from my tiny hallway, so please forgive the occasional sound blip. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you do, we'd love it if you could rate, review, and share. I am absolutely over the moon to welcome David Harewood, critically acclaimed actor, documentarian, and author of the newly released Maybe I Don't Belong Here to I Am, I Have. Hello, David, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for asking me. Pleasure to be here. I would love you to introduce yourself in your own words and tell us what you think we should know about you. My name is David Harewood. I am an actor and writer and director. But more importantly, I am a survivor, a resilient survivor of, of psychosis. And I'm basically trying to help people reduce the stigma of mental health uh, that's attached to mental health. And I just love the fact that in the Olympics that have just gone by, that so many sportsmen have been talking about and prioritizing their mental health and just bringing it more into the mainstream because the more this happens, the more we can sort of, as I say, reduce this stigma and help people who have suffered or feel some form of shame about suffering mental ill health. We can help those people to sort of come to terms with it and, and feel better about themselves. And you absolutely do. We will come on to talk about your newly released book, Maybe I Don't Belong Here, and perhaps touch upon some of the documentaries that you, you have mm. led as well within that time. I'm going to kick off with your first I am, which is I'm in a period of change and new beginnings. Tell us more. Well, I've just um, come to the end of a six year contract um, in, in America. I've been working in America for almost 10 years. So I'm kind of returning to Britain after, you know, a, just a, a very, very long period of working abroad. So it feels very, very new to be back here. I'm you know, no longer sort of dashing off. And normally I'm here for like two months and then I'm gone. But I, I have the, you know, the impression that I'm going to be here for a while now. I'm not, I, I don't intend to, to go away for a while. So I do feel like I'm kind of returning home. And it does feel like a, very much feels like a new beginning because I've just written this book, which sort of took me to a very dark place. In order to write the book, I had to, I guess, sit with my demons, sit with some of the uncomfortable things that helped destabilize me when I did have my breakdown uh, 30 years ago. I kind of sat with all those uncomfortable things and I've sort of faced up to them. You know, a lot of people, we kind of, we bury those fears and we bury those insecurities and we just never want to 
and we never want to face them. It's, and it can be very difficult to do that. But I feel as though having written the book and really sat with those dark secrets, and sat with my insecurities, I just feel quite liberated. I feel as though I, you know, I, I know I've played a superhero over the last couple of years, but I do sort of feel as though I've been given this sort of suit of armor, which is that, you know, I've faced up to my inner fears. And I say I found that incredibly liberating and um, very freeing and, and it's, it's really given me a kind of lease of life. And I'm, I have to say I'm very proud of myself that I did, and I, I have written this book because some of my friends have written books, have also kind of had books ghost written, but I wrote every single word of this. I thought it was important that I, it, this was my, I tell this story. It's sort of been extremely sort of cathartic to sit, as I say, sit in that dark place, come through that, the darkness and find the light. And by the end of the book, I felt lighter. I felt better, more armed against the world and less afraid of perhaps my own insecurities and perhaps more able to help others. Even though it was a difficult ask and a difficult thing to do, I just feel so much better for, for having having sat with, the, with that darkness and, and come through the other side. Well, that's wonderful to hear. And you should be proud because it is a beautifully written book. And I think a lot of people who are listening to this will have watched your documentary, Psychosis and Me, and will feel they know an element of what you're talking about. But one of the things about this book is you go right back to the beginning. You go mm. right back to growing up in Birmingham, um, mm. talking about how you first got into performance. You take us on a journey with you and introduce all of the monumental events in your life, all of your new beginnings from changing mm. schools to, to going to RADA and everything that's happened since. It's quite interesting that you say new beginnings because there are quite a lot of new beginnings within your book as you've, mm. you've moved through your life. Is, was that interesting to reflect on those iterations of you, I guess? Completely. I mean, it really was fascinating to, just to see also how, how innocent I was, that I sort of started off with these sort of rose-tinted glasses, that everything was wonderful, everything was fine. And I, you know, I really was, oh, get a bit, it's, it's amazing how, how many times this sort of gets to me. And, you know, even though I think I'm past it, because as a young boy, I think, I just remember sort of thinking that the world was, was simple and, and, and straightforward. And I think, you know, writing, the, writing that book, and as I say, I start from my very, very first memory. I don't know where this came from, but it just, I'm, the first couple of chapters I wrote in about, literally in about an hour, it just flew out of me um, because I think I, was, I think I was in the sort of right place to, to sort of start writing. It was kind of lockdown and first lockdown was the very first time I'd been home for that length of time in 10 years. You know, as an actor, I'd been out sort of busy working and because of the pandemic, it was the first time I'd stopped. And I think a lot of people found this, that when you stop, you suddenly start looking at your life and you know, I've, I've reached a sort of a plateau where I can sort of look across my life and, and sort of start making sort of connections. And, you know, I was sitting in the garden one day uh, during that pandemic and I looked at my house and I've got a lovely house and I thought to myself, blimey, you know, I've, I've, worked, really, I've worked really hard. And even though, you know, even though it's been a tough road, 
and at times I'd been totally broke and as an actor and I've really struggled in England even though people think I'm successful and it's very very nice but there have been times in my life where it's been a real struggle and I think I, talk, I mentioned that in the book the frustration of not being able to get on so it's only really in the last 10 years working in America that I made some money and you know America's been very very good to me it's given me a lot of respect it's you know people have given me opportunities directing given me um, all manner of support and, and as I say respect from directors from actors and it's sort of almost like I found a new lease of life. It's, you know, whereas here, as I say in the book, you know, the weekend I left to shoot Homeland, I had 80 pounds left in the bank. And I can remember, literally I can remember this day, lying awake in bed, I think it was 2000, 2009, lying awake in bed. I just put my daughter to bed and I was staring up the ceiling thinking, how on earth am I going to get through? Just how, I had no money, I wasn't working. I just thought I was scared. And I thought, I don't know if I can make this. And within the blink of an eye, I get this show Homeland, which propels me from kind of deep depression and feelings of, of abandonment and loss. And within a year, I'm at the Golden Globes and at the Emmys, walking past De Niro and Pacino and you know, all these Hollywood stars. And it was just like a complete reversal of fortune. And I guess, you know, as I say, writing, writing this book, going right back to the beginning was a chance for me to really just see that I have really come a long way. And, you know, as I say, getting through the book and getting to the end of the book really feels as though I've looked at every aspect of everything and seem to have come through pretty well. Just looking at the stages in your life and everything that's, that's happened, yeah. it must have been quite a thing to commit to paper and, and sit and actively go through it. And one of the interesting things for me is you constantly bring it back to your family or, you know, you talk about it being some of the happiest times, you, you watching TV in that room. So you, you seem to have that sense of constantly bring it back to where you began. Well, those are my happy days. I mean, that, you know, just the simplicity of sitting there, as I talk about the, the, the orange glow of the fire and the lights off and, you know, laughter, just lots of laughter, my house full of laughter, my mom or dad, it felt like the safest place in the world. Sitting in the front room, listening to my parents, just raw with laughter and, and you know, watching the television. And as I say, Tommy Cooper just used to make me just howl. He just used to make me howl with laughter. And Benny Hill, you know, all, all you know, just this simple, simple, very innocent comedy. And those are my favorite, favorite days. Uh, so I do bring it back to that moment because you know, and I, you know as, as I talk about in the book, when, when I did have my breakdown, screaming, I have to save the boy. That was the boy that I, I, I'm sure in my head, even though I was confused and lost, that was who I had to get back to. Because that was the boy that dreamed all this, who started all this, who had these, had these dreams of sort of acting or performing or, and sort of innocence. And I'd become lost. And I'd become confused, but you know, in in, in the interim years. So, the, those were the happiest days of my life. And and you know, I credit my mom and dad for creating a very safe space for me to sort of to have this sort of incredible imagination, whether it was James Bond or Thunderbirds or just always fantasizing about planes zipping through you know zipping through the sky and guys parachuting out and having to rescue me and it was just just the innocence of of, of childhood 
that my career sits upon, all of everything I do sits upon that little boy and that the imagination that, that was sparked in, in those days. And, you know, and I, it's, it's really funny. I get, I often hear actors moan when they have to go in for costume fittings. Oh, I've got a bloody costume fitting. I've got to drive into the studio for a costume fitting. And I just think I, I'm, I'm astonished because that's part of it. You know, getting your costume on, creating a character, it's just part of the make-believe of play. So, you know, whenever I'm asked to, for a costume fitting, I run to this costume fitting because I want to see what I'm wearing. I want to, dressing up, that's all part of acting for me. I'm, I'm not really one of these people who is all about the sort of fame and, and the individuality of our, our, our profession. I love dressing up. I love playing. I love make-believe. That was the boy that started it all. And for me, getting back to that through the book, it, it, it actually reignited my joy of, of, of acting. And, and um, I'm really looking forward to, as I say, getting back and start. I feel like I'm starting again. So um, it, it feels like I, I'm coming back to this country to sort of start my career again. And, and I feel really excited about it. And that's, that's yeah, at 56, that's, that's pretty good to, to feel that, you know, you're, you're just beginning again. I feel really sort of excited about what's, what's to come. And that's amazing. And it, it leads on to another one of your I am's, which is I am an actor. And in the book, you, you kind of start off with, you would make people laugh. And you got that, you got that feeling for performing, but somebody else actually said to you, which yeah. I think is amazing um, yeah. for a teacher to say, I think you should pursue this career. You went to the National Youth Theatre and, mm. and RADA, and that is a really joyful explanation of how you felt being in the company of people and creating that feeling of, of a company. And I can hear it from what you're saying now. I love it. I've always loved it. I, you know, I've always, as I said, I've always loved laughter. I've always loved playing. And, you know, I, I come alive in a group. I'm not very good on my own, but I do come alive in, 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 a, in a group of people. And as soon as I went to the National Youth Theatre, it was probably the first time I worked with sort of other professional or what you might call other people who wanted to be actors. I knew I'd found my tribe. I just knew I'd found my tribe. These were people who could laugh, who could make, do silly voices, silly walks, and just, and just be creative at the drop of a hat. And, and I really felt like I, uh, these are people I want to spend my life with. You know, I, I, I just love being around creatives. And um, I guess I have to thank Eric Reader, my teacher. I'll never forget his name. But, I, you know, I, I, and as I say in the book, you know, if I listen closely, I can still hear him ask me that question. What are you going to do when you leave? And I just said, I had no, I, I, no idea. And he said, I think you should, we all, we'll be talking in the staff room and we think you should be an actor. And if ever there was a eureka moment in my life, that was it. It was as if everything went, of course, that's what I want to do. And I never looked back. That was, the, that, was, that was it. I sort of went home that night, sort of knowing what I wanted to do in my life. And even though it's, it has been tough, I'm not going to lie, it's been extremely difficult at times. And there have been times when I've, when I've, um, struggled and I haven't worked and most actors will tell you that those can be the most difficult times when you're when when you're struggling but you know as this was it the saying goes tough times breed tough people and uh you know I just feel as though each of those and I did actually did a documentary on on failure it's called the f word in the acting profession and what was really interesting is 
nobody wanted to talk to me. At first, as soon as they knew I was making a documentary on failure, everybody was a bit like, oh, no, I don't want to talk about that. But once I'd sort of explained to them what it was about, once I'd started to talk to them about just those difficult times that all of us feel, they all came out with stories and they all started really opening up and, and because it doesn't matter if you're the most successful actor in the world, nobody has a career that does that, that just goes up and up and up, nobody. Everybody has a career which is sort of, it's ups and downs. And, 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 and oftentimes the downs can be where you really find out about yourself. And Ed Zwick, who was the director who directed Glory and Blood Diamond, big Hollywood director, won a couple of Oscars. He said something really important to me during this documentary. He said, you don't learn anything from success. You learn, you only learn things in failure. And I said, well, how, how do you mean that? He said, well, you keep winning. He said, you win an Oscar. It's like you're drinking, everybody's happy. Don't ask, you don't ask yourself a question. It's great. It's been films, but it's made money. Everything's great. He said, but if your film bombs, you then sit there and go, hang on a minute. Let me just find out why that didn't work. And you really have to search your soul and really understand why it didn't work, how you feel that it didn't work. And you have to sort of connect with that sense of, loss and that sense of defeat and often that can really uh that can fortify you more than success can because you don't learn anything you, 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 you know as i say if you keep winning everything's fine it's only when you lose that you really ask or you ask yourself serious questions uh, so you know that that was very important to me to sort of understand that that and try and convey in this documentary and what i say to what I always say to young actors is that, you know, it will be tough. And nobody said it was going to be easy. Uh, but, you know, those tough times will teach you something. And if you can make it through, fantastic. If you, means you, you know, have to abandon ship and be a teacher, be a truck driver, be a, you know, you, there might come a time when it almost happened to me. You know, I, you know, I was very... I was hours away from, from uh, completely abandoning my career and, and because I just wasn't working. And you know, my, my Jamaican friend always used to say, there's always work at the post office. <laughs> you know? So I was thinking, well, you know, I'll go and be a poster. You know, I'll go and, you know, go and apply for something else. You know, luckily something else came in and I haven't sort of looked back since, but things are going well for me right now, but I, I guarantee you there'll be another time when I'll probably hit a difficult time but because i've had the experience of how to deal with that you know i think i'll be able to ride it out and perception about acting i think you've just what you we shared that that ed said to you is so important that kind of you you learn from the tough times but mm. also in terms of mental health as an actor that must be something i'm, I'm talking kind of broadly the mm. profession it must be very tough to ride that wave and especially we've heard about lots of people during covid you know when theaters have just closed when yeah. productions have just closed yeah. you know you're a freelancer in essence and and money has just gone it must be tough to negotiate that as a as an actor completely and you know if there's one thing i'm really proud of as i say is is you know more and more people talking about mental health, more and more people is seeing it as a sort of a crucial part of people's well-being. And I hope that the conversation 
begins in our in our own profession because you know we expect these young actors 20 19 20 year old to come out drama school and just have these glorious careers and but nobody ever says to you nobody nobody gives you any first of all nobody gives you financial advice nobody so you're expected to just start earning money and save and Sort you know, out your tax. Sort out your tax. I mean, I got into trouble with my tax, and I I worked for like two or three years, and I thought, hey, this is great. You were spending all my money on stuff, and then suddenly I get a bill from the tax man. Nobody nobody told me that in our profession, you work for almost two years before you get a bill. So it was a shock to me. I, I, I think mental health, when it, in terms of the acting profession. I think we do need a bit of a revolution. I think, you know, I think there should be much more counselling. I think, you know, just expecting actors to just suddenly leave and fly and look after their own careers is, I think it's unrealistic. And, and I, would, I would say that, that, and this was new to me, but, that, but when I did my documentary, Psychosis and Me, two teachers rang me after the documentary went out to tell me that they had particularly had young black students who had also experienced a breakdown, either in the last year of training or just as they left drama school. And I'd be keen to know what the figures are for young actors who do experience some form of breakdown, because it is a very tricky period to navigate. And drama school is a very tr tricky period to navigate. I mean, I, again, I touch upon that in my book. You know, you're changing, you're physically changing, you're growing older, you're staying away from home, your voice is changing, you're, you know, you're around different people. And it's a, it, it can be a very, as I say, tricky period to navigate. There are all these pressures on young actors to sort of fit in. And, and I was alarmed at just how many people I knew who have told me, young actors who have told me that they also had some form of breakdown in, the, in, in you know, when they left and unfortunately I was in a bit of a mess myself in those days after my documentary because I was just overwhelmed by the sheer number of people who were approaching me to to thank me you know and I, I just had no idea that it was so common mm. and people were coming up to me saying oh that happened to my mom that happened to my dad and that happened to my brother and we had no idea what it was and thank you so much and now I understand it's psychosis and I just thought he was being weird and I just disowned him and now he, well, now I understand. And it was just, I, I, I say I was walking my dog. I remember the morning after I walked my, the documentary went out, I walked my dog, which is always a very peaceful hour. But I couldn't get more than 10 steps without somebody saying, excuse me, Mr. Harewood, just want to say thank you so much. for." And I had to sort of, I had to sort of abandon ship and, and, and head home because it, it actually became a little bit too emotional for me because I, I didn't expect to have my peace, my sort of, you know, I think as an actor, you have this, you have a bit of a shield. You know, people think, oh, that's the actor, and they, don't, they think, oh, can't talk to him, and you know, I can't approach him. But I think when people saw that documentary, they were like, that's David Harewood, and I want to go and speak to David Harewood, which was, is great in a way, but it, it just meant that people, I, it made me much more approachable, and I wasn't prepared for that. So, I think that's totally understandable. And as you were just saying about there needs to be more support for 
for the acting community and, and mm. people more widely within that mm. that community everybody who supports what's on stage or mm. i think one of the things that we hear a lot on this podcast is in terms of people who speak about their mental health is the support for the outpouring they will receive afterwards because quite often what happens is it's it's an opening so many people carry around their own experiences of mental ill health that when somebody represents or talks about something that's happened to them it's like a pressure valve relieving and I think that's when you see people flooding people who are mental health advocates and and talking to them we haven't quite worked out how to make that safe for people who are supporting in that space I think you're right and like I say even though I even though I made that documentary almost two years ago and even though I've written the book you know I can feel my I can feel my spirit just like vibrating right now. And, you know, it is a difficult thing to talk about because it's, it's very, it's very, it's a very sensitive subject. And, and, and particularly something like psychosis, which is just so debilitating, mm. you know, it was wonderful to see those young kids in, in that documentary. And even though I was on the brink of, you know, getting very upset some days, their strength inspired me. And I was like, wow, you know, these, these, these kids are unbelievable, you know, how, how they're sort of, you know, you know, they've got the ability to still be so young and, and full of life and full of beans, yet they're, you know, coming out of a, of a very difficult uh, period in their lives. So as long as, you know, we can help, you know, talking about it helps people, I'll continue to talk about it. I might have to take a bit of a breather, you know, every, every now and again. And as I say, you know, I think it's, it's, it's alarming to me just, uh, just how much, it can it can still upset me but um it just sits just beneath the surface you know talking about the experience can sort of bring back memories and uh and i you know re- reading the i i i, I read the audiobook uh, I, I recorded the audiobook about a month ago in, in when i was in vancouver and i've read the book a hundred times you know uh and i, I know it inside out but I would get to particular chapters and I would have to, I would break down and I'd have to stop. And, you know, I could, I could hear myself going, <laughs> the sound recorders going, take your time, take your time. It's all right. Just breathe. Don't worry. Take your time. Take your time. And it, it could be the most inconsequential chapter, but it's just something about that moment or a particular moment, which would just, break me and um I'd, I'd need a second and then i'd get myself together and then i'd be up again and, it, and everything would be okay so it, it isn't it is incredible how how you know mental health or talking about mental health it's difficult it's tough and that's why i applaud people for talking about it particularly those sportsmen in the, in the olympics simone biles um, adam pt uh, uh, um and ben stokes recently i just i leap for joy every time they I read it because I go, great, well done. You know, and I, I tweeted myself the other day, you know, the reason why I support these guys talking about their mental health is because as somebody who's been sectioned and babbling on a locked ward, thinking, you know, I'm, you know, most likely incontinent, a mess. I was a mess. As somebody who has experienced that, I know exactly what happens if you don't prioritize your mental health. So, uh, that's what I'm hoping this, this 
book does, and that's why I'm hoping talk, you know, talking about mental health and being a mental health advocate. That's, that's why I'm doing it, because having been I'm so lucky to have been through the experience, I'm so lucky to have continued and be in a profession that you know, doesn't shut the door on strange people <laughs> or, or odd, odd people. You know, uh, you know, people who are outside the, the but you, uh, actors aren't necessarily the, the, the most straightforward people. But um, I'm lucky to be in a very creative um, profession. Uh, and I will just say this one, one thing that a couple of years ago, again, tweeting about all this stuff, I was contacted by a guy in America who, again, wanted to congratulate me about talking about mental ill health, but he said, he went to his boss, he, walked in the, he work, works in a law firm, and he went to his boss and told his boss that he suffers bouts of depression, feels that you know, sometimes he's spinning out of control, and his boss fired him on the spot. And I was really, it, it cut me. And I, I sort of wrote, and I, said, and I kind of said, you know, he wasn't ready to hear it, you know. Um, and, and, you know, I applaud you for being your true self, you know, but you know, please don't let that stop you from continuing to be your true self. And we had a little kind of exchange on Twitter and, you know, he thanked me for, for his support. And, but I just thought it made me realise that, yes, I am in a very, I'm very lucky because I'm in a profession where if anyone's not going to give me a job because I had a breakdown 30 years ago, that's on them. I don't really care. You know, I, there's plenty of people in our profession who are alcoholics, Plenty of people who are, you know, very strange people. They work constantly. So, so there, is a, there is something in about our profession that if you're good at what you do, people can turn a blind eye to your idiosyncrasies. I have no fear uh, in, in, in talking about mental health. And as I say, if somebody, somebody thinks, oh, no, he's a bit of a risk, that's on them. I, I, it doesn't really bother me. Thank you for sharing that. And I am so sorry for that person yeah, who who true. went and and spoke to their boss we sometimes forget i'm talking about myself mainly that those conversations aren't as easy for everybody because you know happyful is a mental health magazine we're constantly talking about mental health so in a way we're in a bubble we're in a privileged yeah. bubble where we can in my interview for the magazine i was able to say i live with obsessive compulsive disorder and it wasn't something that they raised their eyebrows at. it was something that another question was asked about and it was seen as something that could support what we're trying to do right. that is very privileged really in terms is. of mental health yeah. and we have to remember that that doesn't extend to every you know every section of every industry of every country yeah. so the more we talk about mental health in the workplace and the fact that it is possible to live through some of the worst mental health crises and continue your career, it's so important what you're doing. Thank you. Um, you know, that makes me feel um, great, I have to say, and just <coughs> rain, it back in, <laughs> rain it back in again. But um, that, it's, that's, that's, it's, it's great that, that, you, that you say that, and that's sort of why I do it. And, Again, when I tweeted that the the other week, I just got one one tweet back from some guy in Birmingham. Just went that strong, you know, that strong. You don't, you're not, you're not, you're not asking for anything. You're not asking for applause. He said that's really strong that you tweeted that, and, and well done, you know, that that you're being so open about it. And I am very very open about it. And writing writing my book and and 
delving into the you know the real nitty-gritty of why it happened has been has been really really tough you know really 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 tough but you know i do think i've come out of it stronger even, even though it continues to sort of rattle me when i talk about it and i just hope that i hope that it, it benefits people and i and I, I did give the book to my stunt double uh, who who um expressed an interest to 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 to, to read it when i was uh when and I was talking about it one day on set, and and I just saw him out the corner of my eye leave the room, and I I, I kind of saw it, I, I I noticed it, but I carried on talking about the book, and then in the next break he walked up to me and he's hardly spoken to me before, you know, but he came up to me and went, I heard, excuse me, Mister, I overheard you talking about mental health and you know about your book and it sounds really really interesting because when you told me, when you said the title, he said. I knew exactly what this book was about. And I just had to get up and leave because it just, it's always, it, it always upset him that, that, you know, he was from Rwanda. He got out, he escaped Rwanda at the height of the troubles and arrived in Sweden as, as a six-year-old boy and had never seen so many white people. He'd just never seen white people. And he, 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 he was a little afraid. And he, he remembers, he remembers, um, an occasion when he was in a market shopping with his mother, a seven-year-old boy, and a white lady walked up to him, spat in his mother's face, and called her a dirty black bastard. And it just blew his mind. And for years, he, he couldn't, he hated white people. He said he couldn't, he was always fighting, he was always in trouble. And he's managed to turn his life around, and now he's my, you know, he was, he, he was my stunt double. And I gave him the book, and he, he, after every chapter, he just kept, he kept giving me kind of updates after every chapter. And he was like, I can't believe, I can't believe you're writing this. This is exactly what I needed to hear. This is exactly what I've always thought. This is exactly, this has helped me so much. And at the end of it, he's a manic depression, depressive, and he has periods of real highs and periods of real lows. But he said three years ago, during a period of real one of his real highs he started painting and he painted all these painted all these canvases and within a month he had a show in in vancouver and he's now a celebrated artist um he said he still battles depression and sometimes he'll just go into his room and close the door won't come out for days um uh, his wife and he's married a wonderful woman who he completely completely understands and Every now and again, she'll pop her head around the door and say, paint something, or paint this, or paint what you're thinking. And he'll just go, and he'll just paint these incredible pieces. And he painted this incredible picture for me of myself, my younger self, with a crown on my head. And he said, he said, he said when he got to the end of the book, he just thought I was, the boy was now a king. And it was, it's incredible. And I was blown away by it, really blown away by it. Because it symbolized for him that even though there was a, the boy struggled, he's now a Hollywood star and, and, you know, playing a superhero. And he painted this incredibly beautiful picture, which he's um, gonna send me. He just showed me a canvas of it. And I, I was just blown away by it. How beautiful. Yeah. And yeah. how beautiful that just one person reading your book has started 
and enhance that connection that you two have yeah. but also that it it allowed him to tell you about something which is a source of great darkness in his life but also brings him immense creativity absolutely absolutely and we really bonded after that and we become really kind of close and and um you know a year ago he was he said you know he was literally thinking of killing himself and and because of a, an injury that i had he was actually playing a superhero so he, he was dressed up as this superhero and he's speaking lines and he's playing a superhero and um he just he, he just said to me you would not believe it so that literally a year ago i was thinking of ending it and now here i am playing a superhero for warner brothers television um because of you and it was we just really bonded over that and he has given me a great gift in um, you know everything that he said to me really touched me and uh, i was just so happy that he understood the book you know got it completely and it's given him something to sort of hold on to so if that is replicated with other people that would be tremendous it'd be tremendous if people feel that and you know it, it's a difficult read because uh, you know a lot of a lot of people it does trigger a lot of people but um a lot of black people because it touches upon some very core uh core emotions that as black people we experience um and so people have most a lot of black people who have read it have said wow i had to put that down for a couple of days i had to put it down because it was it was too much but having got themselves through it they feel sort of empowered by it as if as if it's it's solidified because we all think is it just me you know is, is it just me that's feeling this you know maybe it's just me you know i better not say anything because it's just me but the book proves that it isn't just them it's we all have this we all have those similar feelings we all sometimes feel othered we all sometimes feel as though we're on the outside and that we're struggling uh so i'm really glad that it's it it gives them something to sort of hold on to and and that it, it sort of uplifts them as well at the same time well that's one of your i am's which is i am advocating for better mental health support for people of color and when you were saying you know i had to put it down i had to come away from the book for for a while when you are writing about your own experiences you also putting statistics reports you know facts about yeah. how black men entering the mental health system are likely to be over medicalized they're likely to be treated in a certain way they're likely to be regarded in a certain way perhaps more force you talk about i can imagine that that is a difficult read to see that in print in front of you but it's mm. so important to to talk about that and you also in the documentary you did about covid-19 talked about the facts around mental health and also physical health yes so in terms of advocating for better mental health support when you were doing the research around that what was your takeaway what did you want people reading that to take away from it just to understand the pressures on people of color you know quite often you know we're you know people dis dismiss people dismiss even the, the the existence of racism you know we're told oh it doesn't exist 
you know, oh, don't worry, just, just get over it. It's in the past, it's all stuff in slavery, it's all in the past, it doesn't really matter. And it really does, it matters to us. And, um, you know, those stats and statistics were shocking for me. And I think it's been an eye-opener for me to understand just how many people of colour are suffering from mental ill health and understand that I was one of them, you know, not through any fault of my own. I'm a very strong individual. Uh, I consider myself a strong individual physically and even mentally, but it broke me, e even though I wasn't, you know, I, wasn't, I wasn't conscious of it at the time, but it broke me. And if it can break me, it can break anybody. And I, I, I sort of want, I want to, do, to, to draw people, draw people's attention to the, just the microaggressions that go on. I mean, there was one last week, I think it was Eamon Holmes that got into trouble for saying, calling in a black woman's hair, oh, you look like a, 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 a palka, whatever that, that animal is, is called. And she laughed it off, but I guarantee you that woman was dying inside. Guarantee you. And it's just, I wouldn't call it ignorance, it's just lack of knowledge that some, saying something like that is, it's, it's not cool. It's, it's a microaggression. And I, I you know, I, I think if people are more aware, and this, I guess this comes down to this whole question of, and I hate how the word has been bastardized, but the word woke. I mean, it was originally used in, you know, in, you know it was originated in, I think it was 1968, or definitely in the 60s in America, a black playwright used the term to kind of try and make people aware of how black people have to be awake to, the situation around them. We always have to be awake to the situation around them, either from being physically attacked or from being uh, um, verbally attacked. You know, just have to be, I just have to have those antennae out. I call it my spidey sense. It's like we just have to be aware. And it's a, such a shame that the word has been so bastardized in, in this, you know, by those on the right, because I think a lot of people need to be a little bit more woke. Because if they were, they wouldn't say some of the things that they said. They wouldn't do some of the things that they say. You know, being aware of those microaggressions and, you know, that's why I sort of, I put so much fact and statistics in the book in, in an effort to sort of try and just make people aware that, you know, despite what they might be thinking, you know, a lot of black people are dealing with a whole host of issues that they're not even, they're not even, they're not even, capable, not even aware of. They're not even, a lot of white people anyway, are not even, that can't even begin to imagine, can't comprehend it. And I, you know, I still write about that. I you know, remember going to see, I wrote about it in my book about, you know, going to see Legion, the Legion United game and just being just, you know, the foolishness, foolishness of trying to walk, you know, trying to go and sit, a young black boy, nine years old, going to sit amongst a group of Legion United fans who at the time were notoriously racist. I didn't know that. So I just thought, I'm a Leeds fan. I'm going to sit with that lot, with my people. And, and I got a rude awakening when they sort of rejected me. At that time, I wasn't aware. So I think it's, you know, it's a process that, you know, black people have to go through. It's like, you know, the first time, you know, black people get pulled over by the police. You might be, you might fully support the police. You might think they're the greatest thing ever, you know, fully support them. Yet one day you might get a policeman pull you over and, racially abuse you. Suddenly that you, makes you think, oh my, that's not what I thought. 
you know, I remember a couple of years, a couple of years after the, the London Olympics, there was a lady who, the sprinter, I think her name was, she was, I don't remember her name, but, you know, she was, she'd won a, she'd won a medal, you know, running for England. And then, you know, she gets pulled over by the police and dragged out of her car with her child screaming in the back. I think she actually won damages. And it must be really jarring if you're kind of lauded and supported and respected to then be just another blackface. You're just another black person to this policeman. And it, that can be very um, destabilizing. And I, I can imagine how when that happens two, three, four times, you can start to just spin out of control, lose it, get, become, become detached. So, yeah, I think, I think black mental health, and I do it for all mental health, by the way, but, you know, I think I'm opening a door here, I think, on, on the connection between racism and mental health and how, you know, the sort of thousand microaggressions a day of racism can destabilise somebody and get someone to the point where they become just detached, unhappy, resentful, angry, and will strike out. You know, when you think about it, all the crap that we've had to put up with over the years and even, you know, when we were finally given our liberty in slavery, it's not like we were marauding around the world, killing whitey. We just wanted our freedom. It's not like we kind of wanted to burn down houses and get revenge on whitey. We just wanted to be left alone. Give us some land and leave me alone. That's all we want. And it's, it seems that, uh, you know, the more freedom, that's why I say, again, the more, see, the more freedom we get, the more unhappy some people are, the more black faces on television, the more people complain. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a tricky world to navigate when you read that people are complaining that there's a black family in the Sainsbury's after. I can't, I can't empathize with a, this black family. It's ruined my Christmas. I've been empathizing with white families all my life. Yes. <laughs> so uh, it's just, it's an odd thing. And sometimes you just get a little bit I can see how people can spin out of control and get very upset by it. Thank you for sharing that and everything that you do as well around social media, because unfortunately there's been very recent, very public moments, especially around the Euros, where, you know, our wonderful footballers were derided and racially abused after mm. just the day before being lauded and... I can only imagine the mental health impact that has. I tell you, you know, I, felt, I never felt so proud, you know, and I, I almost, I was sort of, I mean, I, 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 mean, I tweeted at the time, you know, just for a second, I almost knew what it felt like, you know, if, and I think if we'd have won, I would have, I would have finally been able to, but almost, I almost felt like I, 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 I'm proud to be English. I'm proud to be British. I'm, I almost feel as though I could finally pin a cross of St. George to my window with pride and with joy. But it gets smashed. It, for me personally, I find it difficult. I still yeah. find it difficult. That was a reminder that, uh, yeah, those angry voices are still present. You know, the day before, as you say, Raheem Sterling's been cheered and applauded. And, you know, I'm sure we all, all a lot of black people felt, we're nearly there. We're nearly there. You know, if, if we win this, we might be part of the culture. We might finally be accepted. But it was so horrendous the next day to wake up to those, to those tweets and headlines. And, but what was equally wonderful 
was the expression from the British people of revulsion to that. Yeah. That was actually really heartening to a lot of us. Heartening that people came out and said, no, that is wrong. And it actually made us feel, you know what, there is a majority. And, and I remember tweeting this that morning, thinking, because I was going to bed that night, and I, I said, I bet there's a lot of people in England waking up realizing they're on the wrong side of this argument. You know, and I think our Home Secretary was on the wrong side with it, saying, oh, they've got every right to boo them. How do they? Fuck. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, Susan, I'm angry. No. She should have come out and condemned it immediately, but she didn't. She didn't. Neither did the Prime Minister. He didn't come out and condemn it immediately. But I think the British people came out and condemned it immediately. And that made us feel, actually, there's a lot of people in the country who see exactly what that is and are as equally disgusted as we are. And it actually made us feel great. It made me feel heartened. Thank you for, for sharing all of that and all of your I am's. I'm going to move on to your I have. I have experienced pain and come out of the other side. And it sounds to me like everything we've spoken about, this book has been very cathartic for you writing this. Mm. And from the book, I take that you explored more after the documentary that you couldn't at the time because it was just completely overwhelming. The documentary, I have to say, left me in a state of shock because I actually started the documentary thinking it was going to be a laugh, thinking it was going to be a bit of fun because I'd forgotten all about it. I'd forgotten all about it. I'd buried it so deep that all I had was a few, a few memories of some of the mania, some of the funny things I did, some of the more eccentric things I did, like, you know, burying the hash outside Buckingham Palace and, and, and uh, you know, just some of the stupid things I did. It was only when Nick and Jez took me, in the documentary, took me to the hospital. And as soon as I got there, I recognized the buildings and it just came flooding back. And I, that was the first time I broke down in the documentary and I, got, I was really upset and um, terrified because I suddenly realized I'm presenting this documentary, <laughs> I'm presenting this documentary, especially really being really professional, but this is me, this is my pain, and I'd forgotten about it. I'd buried it. I was right back in the moment. And then my director, uh, it was wonderful, Wendy Utterwill, she uh, had this sequence where I go and pick up my, my medical records from 30 years ago. And I knew, you know, she said that's what we were going to do. Um, so I sort of, you know, we filmed the sequence where I go and pick up the envelope. And then I was supposed to sit there, open the envelope and read some of my medical records. And the first thing I saw was, I have to save the boy. And I'd merged hearts with a young black boy and it just terrified me, terrified me. Because I suddenly realized and remembered all the things that started spinning me out of control, which was this loss of identity. Um, you know, as, you know, I, you know, I talk in the book how I seems naive, incredibly naive at the time and now, but it's almost like I forgot that I was black. It's almost like I didn't think it was important. And uh, I'd always been the clown, the player, making people laugh. And every, I made everybody laugh, black and white. Everybody just thought I was funny. And then I discovered acting and I was playing all different parts and I could play anything. And then I went to RADA. 
could play anything, play Romeo and Beth, Hamlet, I could do anything. And then I came into the real world and the real world said to me, you're black. And it just spun me out. And I, you know, I'm sitting in interviews and people are saying, so Shakespeare didn't write the part for a black group, a black actor. Do you think it's right that you should be playing? And I'm, I hadn't figured any of this out. I hadn't asked myself any of those questions. I hadn't considered my race. I didn't think it was, I didn't think it mattered. And that was hugely naive of me. Hugely naive of me. And um, I think when I started to double guess myself, should I be liking this? And the people would say, I remember a director saying to me, you've got too many white friends, which was like, what? What? You know, you're a, you're a famous black actor. You should be more, you should be black. You should be more black. I just didn't know what he was talking about. It really destabilized. I got very, very lost. I got very, very lost in those two years at a drama school. And um, th that's what led to my breakdown, you know, of sort of second guessing myself and not understanding who I was, sort of being, speaking very posh, almost being rejected by certain quarters of the black community were like, he speaks very posh. Well, he's not black. So, so I was being rejected by the black community as well. So I just didn't know what on earth was happening. And I, that's sort of what led to me drinking and smoking and, as I say, second-guessing myself. And when I read that in that medical, my medical records, it terrified me. So for the rest of the documentary, I was in a state of shock, but also fearful of what else I would, what else I would find. I was pleased with the documentary and overwhelmed by the reaction. It was only when I, my agent, Natalie, encouraged me to write the book, which is two years later. Yeah. And I, as I say, I wrote a couple of chapters during the first lockdown, but I knew I wouldn't be able to write the book until I got back to Vancouver because my, the envelope containing my medical records was in Vancouver. And as soon as I got into the flat, I was in quarantine for 14 days. So I sat there, moved my desk in front of the window overlooking the creek, it was beautiful. And I sat there and I got the envelope off the shelf and I read every single page, which was really difficult because I never, I hadn't touched it in two years. I hadn't even looked at it. It was like this glowing kryptonite <laughs> in, the, in the corner, just, just this, this document that contained all my fears and worries and having sat with it and opened it and read it and understood it i as i said it liberated me and um that's when i started to write and that's when i started to think about my dad and i never mentioned my dad in the documentary but um you know having him had a breakdown too it's all i could think of and so he my dad became almost my inspiration to 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 write the book because it was almost like a letter to him and uh, trying to understand what happened to us. You know, these two great beloved people. My dad was beloved. People loved my dad. But, you know, it went wrong for him. And, you know, he had a breakdown and was never the same again. Never the same again. Fortunately, you know, it's like, you know, my breakdown, I, I say it's shaken the bullshit for me. Because um, <laughs> I, you know, I have no fears, you know, now. And so, you know, somebody says, someone said to me, you've got three days to 
learn King Lear and go on, I'd say, yeah, all right, that's the challenge, I'll do it. I'd, I'd be excited to do it because it'd be a challenge. I'm not fearful of things like that anymore. Things, you know, so, so having been through pain and come out the other side, I just feel nothing can harm me. Uh, I feel as though I've, you know, and I give myself, I have to give myself a tap on the back because even I didn't realize just how quickly I got back on with my career. Now I understand exactly what happened to me. And now I understand that I buried that pain. I finally sort of acknowledged it. And I feel as though it's just made me 10 stone lighter. And um, I look forward to the rest of my career and enjoying the company of other people and, and, you know, being, being a support to other people. I'm here for the communal. I'm here for, for the everybody. I'm here for the joy of what I do. I, I already feel like I've won, you know, because I, I, my daughter's about to go off to university. So, you know, I feel blessed that I've got two wonderful kids, a wonderful wife, and, and that uh, I've, I've sort of finally realised that actually I'm, I'm doing okay. As you just talked through that, your whole demeanour changed. As you <laughs> came towards the end of saying what you just said, it was like your shoulders went down. I could see that you you felt lighter and that's wonderful and just one observation in terms of reading your your notes I'm so glad you got to do that on your own and you got that time without any other scrutiny because everything you were just saying about you know the director saying you've got too many white friends people not liking the way you spoke the documentary feels like you had a lot of imposed thoughts on you massive way along and you were so young as well at that time so being a boy, yeah. it was a boy. So young, being able to read those and digest those, you having that mental space for yourself. I'm so glad you got that. Thank you so much. And it's, um, you know, as I said, having sat with the dark, I've sort of come to the light. So um, it's been, a, it's been a, a cathartic and liberating experience. And one final question for you. If you could meet David, say, 10 years from now, what do you hope he would say to you? Oh, that's a good one. Um, if I can meet him now, I hope he'd be smiling. I hope, I hope he'd be smiling and laughing. And I'm really looking forward to being an old man, I have to say. I'm 56 and I've never felt better. I've never felt better. And I, I, I hope he says to me, enjoy the next 10 years. Enjoy it because, you know, I, it's, it has been a struggle. You know, you've worked hard in your life and you've sort of had a lot of worry in your life. But I, I hope he would turn to me and say, just enjoy the next 10 years because you've got it coming to you. So I, I'm, I'm, hoping to, I'm hoping the next 10 years are as free as, and as liberating as I feel right now because it feels good. It feels good to be, to be this sort of carefree. Thank you, David. Thank you very much. Real pleasure. Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Counselling Directory and Happiful Magazine. As always, please rate, review and share if you like what you hear. If you'd like to read more about mental health and wellbeing, visit the App Store and download the Happiful app so you can read our magazine on the go as well as finding out about therapy, wellbeing and other support available in your area. If you need to speak to someone immediately, the Samaritans are available 24 hours a day on 116 123 and you can also email joe at samaritans.org help is available. This podcast has been produced and hosted by me, Lucy Donoghue. I hope you'll join us again soon.